This is week six of our series, The Last Supper on the Moon. And hold on. I must not have tightened this enough. And I actually want to begin with a story about that first moon landing in 1969 when those two astronauts were in that little capsule or that little lander and they were about to land it actually got really tense and I have a short recording of that final moment and I'm hoping that I'll be able to play it and Beverly actually told me this morning that when that landing happened, you had your little daughter at the time, and was she in a car seat or a stroller or something? Oh, a carry, carry seat or something like yeah. that. Yeah. She was three and a half months old, but she saw it. <laughs> this is Martha, right? Yeah, and um, so she set her right in front of the TV to kind of watch it live. And that was uh, a little over 50-ish years ago. Um, this is a picture of from the command part of the ship looking down at the lander as it was going to land on the moon. I'm going to turn this up a little bit because this recording is 50-year-old audio recording. Let me play it for us. So some of the actual recording. One of the things that happened was they, he said a few things in the recording, he said, we're picking up dust. We're picking up some dust, he said, there's a faint shadow, we're drifting to the right a little. And if you recall, we said this a couple of weeks ago, that they were doing all of this with very basic computer stuff. We're talking computers that we said are less, were less powerful than the computer you have in your phone. So the fact that it says they were drifting a little right and they were picking up dust, you can tell that the people that were on the ground were, were of course, nervous. You've got all, you, it's good to hear that you landed, the eagle has landed, now we can breathe again. And you see the reason that the people were having trouble breathing and everybody was nervous was they actually overshot the landing a little bit. Because when they were separating up in space from the command piece, the command part, 
It's sort of like when you open up a can of carbonated soda, there's that little release of gas. It kind of psh, that sound. Well, that's sort of, that's basically what happened with that little lander. It actually picked up a little extra oomph that they didn't completely account for. And it was hard to tell exactly where they were going to land. There were boulders the size of Volkswagens, they said over the radio. And it might not seem like such a big deal, but if they were to get off of the moon, they needed that little lander to land upright because the very bottom where its legs were was going to be the launch platform that would shoot the top part back up into the space to connect with that other piece. If they ever wanted to take off, they needed those legs to land firm. Now the moon had a thick layer of dust on top from eroded rock. It was not made of cheese, as people liked to joke. It was all sorts of eroded rock, and that thick layer of dust coated everything. In fact, when you see pictures of uh, their footsteps, you can see it's heavy amounts of dust, like in that picture on the right there. It just gives a little bit of some of the dusty footprints. And as they descended, all that dust got kicked up by the jets of the lander. And in those final, most important moments, they couldn't see anything. In essence, they were flying blind flying blind, hoping for the best. We too can find ourselves in situations similar to that, certainly not landing on the moon, but times where we're in the midst of something, yet we can't really see too well. And we have to trust things that are outside of ourselves to get us somewhere safely. We might not know how to navigate or even what to do in some of those hard situations of life, because there's not always someone to help or guide you. And you might not even know how things are going to work out. When you are flying blind in life, it gets real lonely real quick. Just like it did for those two guys that landed. My hope and prayer today is that God would help us to find our way into the light. His light. To open our eyes, but also to reveal those areas in our lives where we are blind right now. Those areas where we need Jesus' healing in order to light the way. So let's look at the sixth sign of Jesus. It's that six of seven in John's Gospel. And if you have a Bible this morning, you can open up to John chapter 9. Now this is a very long chapter, and we're only going to read a short piece of it but I definitely encourage you to read the whole thing on your own. It will definitely give you some more insight as to what Jesus was doing in that moment. One of the cool things as you've been reading each of these different signs, we start to see common themes pop up. We see Jesus get into disputes with some of the leaders of that day. We see Jesus act in a whole bunch of unusual and different ways. And in this miracle, we see a powerful witness to Jesus' role as the one sent by God to bring about healing and salvation to a world living in darkness. So let's read verses 1 through 7 together right now, starting with verse 1. 
As he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. Definitely an unusual thing for Jesus to do. He hawks a loogie, mixes it. I mean, when you think of it sort of like that, it's not the most orthodox way of healing someone. The whole rest of this chapter is a whole series of events that happen with this man. There is confusion from the neighbors. Some of the people thought, oh yeah, that's, this is him. And others were like, no, that can't be him. This is a guy who's always been blind. There is a, an interrogation, a challenge by the religious leaders, those Pharisees. They want to know what happened, who did this. And when do you think this was all happening? It was healing once again in a place and a time where it wasn't permitted. This man is really interesting now. He resists every attempt to discredit the miracle. He actually re risks rejection rather than deny what Jesus did for him. Imagine, you're seeing living color for the very first time in your life. You can imagine the joy and the gratefulness in this man. Those leaders even call in his parents as witnesses. They want his parents to somehow say, no, nah, this isn't true. But his parents are like, our son is he's a man. He can speak for himself. His parents were actually afraid of the religious leaders. Sadly, this story almost ends with the Pharisees hurling insults at him. They actually tell this guy, you've been steeped in sin since your birth. And they expel him. They kick him out. They can't stand what they've seen. They don't know how to deal with it. With new sight, this man is excluded once again. He's back on the margins of society, even though now he can see. But then I'd like you to listen to how Jesus responds down in verse 38. Let me read that for us. 
Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I'll stop there. As we consider this sign this morning, I'd like to highlight three things that we see that I think can help us better understand this sign and what Jesus was really doing. I put some of those things on the back of your bulletin. Three things that we see. And the first thing that we see is we actually see Jesus' disciples ask a misguided question. A misguided question. Jesus and his disciples are walking in Jerusalem. And what happens? Jesus sees this man at the side of the path, a man blind from birth, it says, probably begging for food or help or whatever the case may be. And everything that follows in this story is all because of what happens right at the beginning. Jesus sees him. In fact, that's one of those common themes that we see in a lot of the miracles of Jesus. That it begins because Jesus took the time or had the ability to see the person. How many times have we failed to see the person? His disciples, however, only see the man's condition, his blindness. And they make assumptions about him, but it leads them to ask the wrong question, or at least a misguided question. They wonder, why is this guy blind? Why is he in this situation? And in their heads, there are only two possible outcomes that they can comprehend. Well, he must have done something, or his parents must have been bad. They ask an either-or question. Did he sin or did his parents sin to make him this way? Exactly. It sounds a little bit like Job's friends. Remember the story of Job and Job is in horrible suffering and his friends are not helpful because they think it must, you must be suffering because of something you did. It's your fault somehow. And Jesus says, neither. This is not about sin. And then he invites them to see something different and entirely new. The amazing works of God revealed in this guy's life. Remember those spindly legs of the lunar lander from before? I actually have a picture of that once again. That lander is actually two parts acting as one. There's the top part and the bottom part. The whole reason this design was used was because of one man. One guy who actually asked the right question all the way back in 1962. One guy only 
who had the vision of how not just to get to the moon, but to get back from the moon, and this is that guy. His name is John Hobart. And yes, that is a blackboard. He did some of his math on a blackboard. Not a blackberry, a blackboard. And he actually, if you go online, you can see some of his initial sketches that he just did on paper, working out some of the math using a pencil. John proposed using a spacecraft with four different parts. Parts that would need to be disconnected and connected while they were in space. But there was just one problem. This had never been done before. And everything had to go exactly right being so far from Earth. If there was one mistake, they would never have returned home. The moon would be their tomb or space at least. And this design was actually pretty cool because it included a command module. There's sort of a top part and a bottom part and the orbiter and the lander. And they figured out, we don't just have to get this stuff to the moon. All we have to do is get a little piece of it to the moon to save some weight and time and money. And in his design, he had a command and a service module, and this was the part that stayed up in space, and that little capsule is what came back to Earth and splashed into the ocean several days later. The service part was what had all of the gas and the food and the oxygen and everything that they needed to survive. And one guy stayed in that command module, and then two guys went on the other part, the lunar module that went down to the moon, kicked up all that dust, and then when they were done, the bottom part stayed there and it, it sort of shot the top part back up into space. In many ways, yeah, they were flying blind. They had done all the math, but there was an element of winging it as well. That's not something I really want to think about if I was ever in space. Oh, we're just kind of winging it here. We're doing our best. We're looking out a window and trying to aim in a certain direction. That little piece is what eventually would take all those astronauts home. When John shared his idea in a meeting, one engineer actually stood up and said, his numbers lie. He doesn't know what he's talking about. They didn't believe him. They didn't think his idea would work. You see, he was not respected by some of the bigger, well-known names at NASA, and he was considered an outsider. And he actually left NASA the next year, in 1963. Eventually, though, after he left, they came to realize that this was the only solution that would actually work. He was invited back for that historic landing six years later in 1969, and once that Thing landed on the moon, the original scientist that had disagreed with him turned to him and said, thank you, John. It was a good idea. Jesus' disciples had some incorrect assumptions about the nature of sin, and that led them to ask the wrong question. Now, they didn't really know any better in that day. In that day, they thought that if you were in a position of suffering, or pain, or disability, or disease, 
that it was somehow because of sin. It must have been your fault or your family's fault. That was the prevailing wisdom of the day. And unfortunately, some people still believe that today. And while there are times where that certainly can happen, we all know that we can make choices in our lives that cause pain and suffering, or we can inflict them on other pain and suffering on other people. The distortion is that when we believe that every act of suffering, every experience of pain, every ongoing condition is someone's fault. Or we see an absence of healing and we call it a lack of faith or we think it's some kind of punishment for sin or evil. And not only is this wrong, but this kind of thinking actually clouds and confuses our minds, making it almost impossible to see what Jesus sees and to act as Jesus does. When the disciples start to assume that it's this guy's or his family's fault, Jesus stops them in their tracks. He stops that line of questioning and he actually redirects them to see the bigger reality that is being manifested in this moment. He invites them to see how is God at work in the midst of this difficult situation. That's the more important question he wishes they would ask. How is God working? Even in the midst of pain and suffering and heartache, because when we get a glimpse of what God is doing, we begin to see as he does. And we can respond with hearts of compassion as Jesus does. Instead of misguided questions that keep us at a distance from people who are in pain and suffering or who are seen different, I think God would prefer that we simply say, how can I? How can I join God to make a difference? To help alleviate the suffering in some small way. So that's the first thing that we see in this story. We see the disciples ask a misguided question. Some of you have maybe experienced that in your life. Something that is not your fault. It's not necessarily the fault of family dysfunction. And yet you've seen the way people look. You've felt the judgment. The stares. You may have even heard someone say something to you. I guess your faith just isn't strong enough. I know I have heard that. Not only is that wrong kind of thinking for us as Christians, but it's actually damaging to people. Because it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's that you have faith. Jesus sometimes will ask that question, not how big or small is your faith, but he says, where is your faith? He's looking for the presence of faith that is even as small as what kind of seed? A mustard seed. Who's seen, I forgot to bring them today, but who's seen mustard seeds before? A little jar like this has like 500 seeds in it. 
Jesus is never concerned about the size of something, but the presence of it instead. So that's the first thing, a misguided question, and also the question that Jesus would prefer we move to. The second thing that we can see in this story, and what I just said, I actually could, we could do a whole message just on that, so we'll do that another time. I want to move on. Second thing that we see, we see Jesus offer an unusual solution to this problem. We already said it a little bit. I imagine he makes that sound. Doesn't that make you feel good? If you heard that sound and you're blind, close your eyes. You hear that sound and then you hear a little, you just hear this, and then all of a sudden you feel fingers on your eyes that are closed. You're wondering, what is this guy doing? What is he doing to me? At least that's how my brain thinks and what I initially thought when I was reading this story. Jesus' unusual solution, it really shouldn't surprise us that much anymore. We've seen this all throughout the miracles and, and in actually most of the way Jesus acts in the world, he does things unexpectedly. He doesn't always behave in an orthodox manner. We've seen Jesus heal with a word. We've seen healing happen when someone touches the hem of his garment. We've seen him transform water into wine. We've seen him multiply food. We've seen him walk on the water. We've seen him calm the storm. And now he uses some dust of the earth and a little water from his body, and he brings sight to this man. Jesus does this, and this is an unprecedented miracle. You see, there are other people in the Bible that had been blind and had received their sight through a miracle of healing, but never before in the history of humanity had God ever healed someone who was born blind from birth. In this unusual healing, Jesus knows exactly what is needed, both for this man and for all who are there to see it happen. He knows that it's not about the mechanics, it's not about the dirt or the spit, or even about touching his eyes, or even about sending him to that pool to wash it off. That actually none of that mattered, except for the power of God that was present in Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus working to reveal the glory and power of God to the world as he does the gracious work of his Father in heaven. This man's new eyesight actually leads him on a journey. His eyesight leads to actually insight. And it's a journey for this guy. You see, he's not healed instantly. There's this process. And in the process of his healing, he actually comes to see Jesus in different ways. He begins to see Jesus more and more for who he is. He first sees Jesus as a man. And if you read the whole story, you'll, hear, you'll see all these words. And then he sees him as a prophet. He must be some kind of special dude. And then later when he's questioned by the Pharisees, he says, 
this guy, because he did this, he must be sent from God. And then finally, in an encounter with Jesus, he actually has Jesus say, the Son of Man. And this is how he comes to see Jesus as the Son of Man. In verse 38, he comes to that place in his life where because of all of that, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus could have healed him in any way. Any of the ways that we've seen before. He didn't need to touch him. He didn't need to send him to that pool. But he chose to do it that way. And for you and me, God, have, God could have done anything to save us. But he chose to do something that seems foolish. He sent his son to die on a cross so that you may live. And for the world that might seem as unusual or as foolish as walking through the city with mud on your eyes and trying to stumble around to find a pool to wash it off to receive your sight. What Jesus did for you and me is no less miraculous. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. That from the outside what Jesus did doesn't make any sense and it looks foolish and dumb. But to those who have received power from him, received the gift of sight, received the gift of salvation, you know it as the amazing power of God at work in the world and in your life. Yes, this was an unusual solution that met this man's immediate need and eventually led to his eternal salvation. His eyes were opened and he now could see what he could not before. That leads us to the last thing for today. A final thing that we see, number three, we see that encountering Jesus changes everything. Or you could say one encounter with Jesus can change everything. That morning when he woke up, he had no idea that everything was going to change for him. Think of all those days earlier in his life that it had been the same on repeat. And all because Jesus saw him and stopped what he was doing to have that encounter, everything changed for this guy. Now the changes that happened to him were hard and some of them were difficult. He received his eyesight, yet he was rejected and called a sinner by those that thought they could see clearly. His parents came, which should have been an amazing thing, but they were too scared to say what they thought. They kind of passed the buck. They said, well, he's, he's old enough. He can speak for, ourself, for himself. We're not going to get involved. Who here has faced rejection from people in your life? 
he came to see the Lord directly with his own eyes. And as his eyes were opened, his heart responded. And the greatest change ever happened for him. He came to believe in Jesus, and it says he worshipped him. Yes, for this guy, everything changed. And everything was not easy for him. But he was flying blind no longer. Friends, when you encounter Jesus in your life, it doesn't mean that everything is perfect or that your hardships or pain or suffering will suddenly come to an end. But one thing that will happen when you encounter Jesus is that your eyes will be opened to see as Jesus does. And you will be given an opportunity to respond with an open heart as Jesus does. One encounter with him one moment in the presence of God can actually change everything. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And the light of the world illuminates everything in darkness. Have you ever been in a room and you turn that light on and things go scurrying? That's what happens to things that light the dark. But everything else you can see clearly. I know when we lived in Mississippi it was the roaches. And in a few other places, it's been the mice or the rats. But when the light of the world illuminates the darkness, all is revealed and seen. Mark drove me to church this morning, and when we were driving, the sun was coming up, and it was shining in our eyes, and it made me think of this, that we can't look at the sun directly for too long without squinting and if you maybe your eyes start to water like mine do often and if you look too long at the sun you can actually damage your eyes but you know what you can look at all night long you can look at the moon and you can gaze up in the sky at that dusty rock and what is its job it sits there in the sky and yes, we can talk about tides and all that. Its job is to reflect the light of the greater light, the sun. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We sang earlier about the treasure. The very next verse in Corinthians is, For we have this treasure in jars of clay, or in another way of thinking it, jars that are made out of the dust of the earth, like you or me. Jesus told his disciples, I am the light of the world, and because of this, all who turn to him can receive healing. And all who come to believe in him will be saved, and we can say glory to God because of that. That his light shines through us when we come to believe in him. And when that happens, we see this miracle happen over and over again. Jesus' offer of healing and wholeness for a dark and hurting world, and he invites you to participate in that good work. And the light of that truth can change everything.
And so we say thanks be to God for his wonderful works. Church, let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this sign. I thank you that John recorded it in this particular way. We thank you for the way that you saw this man. And as we pray right now, I acknowledge that, like him, there is plenty of pain that we don't understand. And sometimes we struggle to see how you are at work. So in this moment, oh God, we call upon you to help us. Open our eyes as you did with him so that we too can proclaim I was blind but now I see I was lost but now I am found I was dead but now I'm alive Father I pray that the power and the glory of that truth would shine in us reflecting brightly into a world struggling to see in the dark Church as we pray right now Maybe your heart is reminding you that there's some pain right now. Something difficult that you don't quite understand or you can't make sense of. But you know you need God's help. So in this moment, cry out to him, Jesus, I need your help. Heal me. Make me whole. If this is the cry of your heart this morning, and I pray that Jesus would touch you right now with his healing and saving power. I ask for his help, his plan, his will, that they would come to rest within you in the face of whatever stands before you. May you experience today the sweetness of his presence like a healing balm upon your soul. May your faith be made stronger, able to shine like gold refined by the heat of the fire. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to say, Lord, I believe. And if you've never taken that step to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I want to invite you to believe in him now. Know that nothing can separate you or disqualify you from his love Everything needed has already been accomplished for you. His death on the cross paid the price for sin, and his resurrection opened the way for you to receive salvation. If this is where you find yourself today, then we're going to pray a very short prayer right now as the first step to opening your eyes to receive the life God intends and has in store for you. If this is you, then as an offering to God and believing it in your heart, pray with me like this. God, I want to see you clearly. I know that I'm a sinner. And I can't save myself. But I believe you can. Please enter my life. Heal me. Make me new. Be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And friend, if you prayed that prayer or you prayed earlier for God to open your eyes, I would invite you to just let me know later on. I'd love to either pray for you or with you or to rejoice with you as well. And church, now as we prepare to go, we receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Church, have a wonderful week. Great to see you and I look forward to seeing you.